Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for braving the weather and coming out tonight. Thank you, virtual audience. I told Iris I'm blaming California. <laughs> you've, you've put in, wh where are you in California? Did you have to put up? What um, I'm in a city called Altadena, and it's, um, it, we didn't have it as bad as some of the places, especially up north. Yeah, oh, good. They had right, because really I wondered now. if I was going to get a distressed text from you saying, you know, sorry, I, my, there's no flight, whatever. But anyway, um, Iris and I did a Zoom event for her debut novel, which was a first Mystery Club book last year called City Under One Roof. And as Alaskan author Dana Stabenow is currently staying in my house, um, she let me know that in point of fact, Point Meteor that you are writing about is really based on Whittier, Alaska. That is correct. It's inspired. I say it's inspired by oh, okay. Whittier because I have changed quite a bit of the geography. And, of course, all the characters are completely fictional. Right. So I always say it's inspired by. I'm sure you're right that that's a better, better term. Um, and what is it that is so unusual about Whittier and the city in your book? Well, in, in Whittier, most of the residents live in a single high-rise building. In my fictional town, they all live in the high-rise building, and it's very isolated. So the only way in or out is through a single-lane tunnel through a mountain, and it closes at night, and um, if there's an avalanche, you're stuck. And that's, yeah, that's the kind of the premise of the first book. So that's an Alaskan version of an Agatha Christie country house murder, which is that everybody is, instead of in a country house, in a high-rise building. Um, and I find it interesting, um, and maybe it's more true in Village in the Dark, that one enterprising villager actually bought a whole floor and rents out those as apartments. Yes, um, Ellie Wright is the innkeeper in um, Point Meteor. And um, so she has a floor of rooms that she rents out, and she has kind of a shady past where she was sort of the Bonnie of a Bonnie and Clyde bank rob robbing team. And um, it was, she was fun to write. She's in her 60s, and she's got a surly southern accent. Right. Well, she's in Village in the Dark. I can't remember. Does she show up in City Under she One Roof? She first makes her appearance in City Under One Roof, but she has a much bigger role in Village in the Dark in the second book. So your protagonist in these two stories is Kara, uh, or Kara. Which way do you want to call it? I call her Kara, but I okay. don't care. All right. And you've made her um, a policewoman, but she has a difficult, um, she's in a difficult situation. Yes, um, she's sort of haunted by uh, the loss of her husband and her son in a hiking accident. And um, in the first book, um, she solves a crime which she thinks has nothing to do with what happened to her husband and her son. But um, in the second book, she gets a clue that maybe there was a relationship or there was some kind of tie. And so she has to... Um, investigate that and she st it starts off with her exhuming the bodies of her husband and her son to have an autopsy done. So a clever mystery writer writing a debut will put in something that can be carried on into the second book. But what's the mystery in the first book? Because you now that's background information essentially for Cara that her husband and son have gone off God knows where and you know never come back. 
Well, in the first book, um, what draws her to the city is that there has been a dismembered bobby body that has washed up on the shore of the cove here, and um, her the for her husband and her son, their part their body parts were also in parts, and um, it was explained that you know there were wild animals, and in um, Point Medier, where she goes to investigate, it's explained as a phenomenon, which is true, because this is what also inspired the story, was the idea that there have been like shoes and feet that have washed up on the shores of um, places in Pacific Northwest. And so it's just chalked up to another one of those, but she thinks there might be, there could be something else going on. Do I remember that there's, that's been, was it around Seattle or somewhere, that there is a prevalence of yes, yeah, shoes? Yes, exactly. There, it has been happening in Seattle and even uh, California and I think in Oregon, uh, all the way along up the coast. There have been shoes. Do the shoes have bums in them or feet? Yes. Okay, they so have not just them. shoes. They ha yes, mm -hmm. they actually have, yes. And they explain it as... Um, uh, people who committed suicide or uh, other means of death, and when they decay, their um, shoes are buoyant, and so they float up and wash up on the shore. So, in theory, they. these are bodies in the water that, I mean, yes. they sunk down, and now the shoes are rubber sole shoes are coming up like inner tubes. Wow. Yes, that's what that's the theory is. Thought. Have you read about that? No, I've seen a d quite a several articles in the paper, or if you do Instagram, which I do for the bookstore, the strangest <laughs> things go by you, you know, so that's kind of where it comes from. But anyway, um, right, and so there really is no particular explanation. Um, are, do, do you know that in real life, did, are they able to try to do any kind of analysis of the bones to locate who it might be, or is it just so expensive and you know, unlikely that they'll find out, they let it go? How's that work? What I read, and I'm not an expert on this, but uh, I've read that seawater kind of makes it impossible to do DNA tests. Hmm. So they aren't able to. Um, I think there was one theory floating around that they were tsunami victims when there was that huge tsunami and then it's taken so long, but they eventually drifted this way. So uh, oh. that was one theory, but they don't really know, I think, but that's they just chalk it up to it's nothing um, criminal, but who knows? Who knows? Or animal. Well, if it were animal, the bones would probably be gnawed, so we'll see. So anyway, um, but Cara, um, if I remember right, she works for or worked for the Anchorage PD. Yes, um, she worked for the Anchorage uh, PD, but... Um, because she was so obsessed with what happened to her husband and son, they put her on disability for, um, you know, for her trauma and that she's unable to function well as a police investigator. So she's actually on disability. Okay. Well, trauma and depression, you know, right. So she arrives on a, what, mission of her own? She's not actually formally investigating here and... Point well, that here. was um, <laughs> that's yes. In the first, in the first book, that was the case. 
um, in this and in the second book, she is just completely on her own mission. It's not anything. She's not working for the police department. It's it's completely on her own um, volition, and it's it's her own personal investigation. So, I mean, planning ahead, like to book three or four, she could actually go back to the police department if she settles everything, or she could decide to take a different role. No, I'm not asking you to answer it. I'm just speculating that you set it up so she could go in a couple of different directions. I, I did kind of leave it that way. Um, I'm not going to say that I, I won't be writing another book in this series, but I do have an idea for a completely different series, so... Um, well, that's all right. You brought, you brought the yeah. main issues, you know, full circle um, in, in these two books together. So I can see how that would that would work. So when she came down with Sitting Under One Roof, she met some people in Point Meteor, um, and one guy in particular who ended up um, with an injury, and um, he's now got a prosthetic foot in Village in the Dark. Um, or toes? No, toes, yes. not foot. Right, prosthetic toes. Exactly. I've never heard of prosthetic toes. I can, <laughs> I can sort of see that you could change a foot, but I'm curious about how you would actually work prosthetic toes. I mean, you know, are they like dentures, and you strap them on? And did you look? You know, I did not. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really thought but about it. But I know it. people have special shoes. Sure. Uh, well, there are people with yeah. frostbite, you know, yes. um, and other things yes. where they lose toes. That's not an uncommon thing in very cold places. And it's hard to keep your bow. One of our staff broke his toe, and he was shuffling around the store, wasn't he, for for days. Jacob, did you remember he broke his toe? And he was, yeah. Um, so, you know, you it, it does definitely affect your ability to walk even one toe. So if yeah. you'd lost several toes, you would have to come up. I thought you were on the cutting edge here of medical technology. <laughs> I wish I was. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Well, anyway, so he's there to help. Um, but I thought that um, you you do tend to use different voices. You know, it's not just a single narrator. Um, and I thought the older, more difficult woman, uh, with the, I wouldn't even call it a shady past. I'd call it a criminal past. Uh, the Bonnie and Clyde woman, um, really is a, you know, equal opportunity narrator in Village in the Dark. Yes, I enjoyed writing Ellie. I think when I was writing the first book and I had chosen um, three protagonists, or three voices, I mean, sorry, three voices, um, but I had a lot of other characters that I really liked and um, thought Ellie was one that had more of a story that I could expand on and um, she was definitely fun to write. Um, and I always think when I'm writing a book that, um, or a screenplay, when you have different characters, uh, I, I always learn in screenwriting that um, a test of a good character is if you can pull a line of their dialogue and you know exactly which character is speaking. And so that's when I choose my um, voices, I try to make them very distinct so that you know which one is talking. Just, I mean, you don't have to look at their name. You can just look at the, the, the word, their dialogue and figure out who's talking. Well, I was going to ask you if your screenwriting background was one reason you chose to have more than one narrative or one point of view, as we say in the, you know, technical sense. Um, actually, it's, uh, I think 
well, I've, I've come from the world of film where there's usually only one POV. Um, but in um, streaming now, you know, like television series, then you have multiple POVs. And I think it's more about um, the length of time that you have. So in, in a screenplay, you know, usually a film is maybe two hours. You don't really have that much time to go into a lot of voices. But whereas in streaming and television, there's a lot more time. And I think of books that way, too, that you have a lot more time to go into these different characters' POVs. And I wanted to try that. So that's why I did that. Is that part of the fun for you? Yes, do definitely. You, do you, you know, we've, we've had a number of authors over the years who have come from screenwriting backgrounds. And then we've had authors that have tried to do screenwriting or successfully done screenwriting. How do you see them as, you know, are they quite different in the way you go about it? Uh, yes, I think they are quite different. Um, but I had started off when I was taking uh, writing classes, I had started off taking classes in writing um, in prose fiction. So I had always thought I was going to write a book, but then I couldn't finish writing a book. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody in Los Angeles is writing a screenplay, so I thought, well, maybe I should try that. Right. And that turned out to be a lot easier to finish because it's only about 100 pages and there's a lot of white space. And so I switched over to screenwriting because I could actually finish, finish a screenplay. Um, but I think learning um, how to write a screenplay also gave me the tools to write a book because there are certain things about story that you learn in screenwriting about like a three-act structure and um, character arcs and um, things, tools that made it uh, easier for me to then go back to writing a book and actually finishing this time because now I had more tools and I also learned how to outline. Oh, there you go. But also screenwriting, the script has to move up a lot pacier at a faster pace than a book necessarily does, and therefore I've often thought that screenwriters tend to move faster through the story. That's a good point, yes. Um, we, we do learn that your scenes have to be short and you can't have long lengths of just dialogue or <laughs> there's no action. So I'm sure that influences um, screenwriters to write shorter scenes or shorter chapters and try to have action move along a little bit faster. All right, I was thinking of Thomas Perry, um, Sue Grafton, Dennis Lehane, would you say, you know, because Dennis is doing almost exclusively screenwriting, Patrick, do you think that his books have started moving faster since he spent so much time doing screenplays? They've gotten shorter. <laughs> All right, so that might have something to do with it. Um, and we've also had screenwriters say that they really love the freedom of working entirely on their own writing a book. Yes, that's also a good point. Um, in screenwriting, you're sort of just a piece of the puzzle, and there just is a there's a huge crew. You know, there's a director, there's a set designer, there there there's so many people involved, and you are just one piece of the puzzle and it's usually, the other thing is when you're doing a screenplay is you're usually working off of someone else's idea. So you have um, a either a producer's idea or IP, like you're adapting a book, 
or uh, something else. Maybe it's just a news article that a producer has found that wants to write a movie about. Um, and then there's you know the director's vision. So you're always working off of someone else's idea or vision, whereas a book, you have this freedom where you are everything. You're the director, and you're the casting director, and you're the set designer, and you know it's all it's all you, which is kind of daunting, but also um, liberating at the same time because it's um, it's your vision. It's what you want to write. So I, you know, I've thought about this um, that screenwriting. You don't really have to describe. You don't waste a lot of words on the set, so to speak, and you know, and yet I think your two books. The landscape is maybe the most important character in both books. For one thing, it's very unusual. And for another, um, it dictates a lot of the action, uh, the weather and the place together. So, you know, did you have to, I mean, learn how to do that? Since in screenwriting, basically, you could just leave it up to whoever was going to carry out that part of the movie? Well, I think, um, well, I think of the setting as a character in a way. So um, if, if the setting can do some of the work for you and setting the tone and um, act, again, like it, it gives you an emotion or a feeling that that's great. And I do think visually, and so it, you know that's part of the process is you have something like the movie rolling in your head and then you have to put it down on paper um, which you do a little bit of in screenwriting, but one thing I don't usually do in screenwriting is uh, the casting. So <laughs> when I was writing the first book and I had the protagonist, usually in screenwriting it's, it's just sort of like woman 40s and that's it. <laughs> so I, hadn't, I realized when I wrote the first book that I had never described my protagonist until they started um, thinking of what the cover design would look like. And the artist asked, what does she look like? And I thought, oh, boy, I never described her. So I went back and I edited and I put in some description. But it was something that, you know, I, I wasn't used to. No, you wouldn't need to. Absolutely. So let's see what happens. And I brought it up. We already know that Point Meteor is a very isolated community. You can only reach by a tunnel. But then we get a blizzard. And it causes the tunnel to close down, and there she is, stuck among all these people. 205 people in the same high-rise building. And she terms up with a local police officer named Joe Barkowski, um, and then stuff goes on. So she, and she survives um, this first book, and now she's there in Village in the Dark. But Village in the Dark does not take place, certainly not entirely, in Point Meteor. Right. There, she does go back to Point Meteor, and um, there's a little bit of of the of of that, and um, some of the characters return. But I also introduce a new setting, which is the village in the dark, and some new characters. So um, I try to put in a little bit of everything. I, you know, I have her ongoing relationship with Joe Barkowski, um, and then. Th there's the the dark ho horse character, which is, her name is Mia Upash, and she's from this all woman or woman run village, which is the village in the dark because they're off the grid and they're isolated and um, they're there for er, they're isolated for a reason, and um, 
what her role is in the mystery is is unknown, um, but uh, they all come together. It does. No, there are many plot strands, and they all come together. I was asking Iris if she was familiar with Kelly, Kelly Armstrong's series, which um, is a, t a fictional town set in the Yukon. I think it's called Rockton. I keep wanting to call it Brockton, but I think it's Rockton. Um, but it's there more or less as kind of a version of witness protection. The people who go there um, are people who are generally running for their lives or, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, but it's not all women. You know, it's a mixed thing. And as it happens, they still have to come up with some kind of governance, you know. I mean, people may come from all, but, but a community still has to be run. You know, there has to be some sort of structure to it and, you know, enforcement to it and all. And Kelly, I think, has written, I don't remember, four or five, but anyway, her two main characters have left Rockton and are starting another community in the Yukon. And I, I'm not entirely clear why, because I haven't read the new book, whether um, she'd said all she could about Rockton or whether there were events that made it untenable for the two leads, you know, to stay there and they needed to move and create their own community or whatever. But I think it's a really interesting idea that you can have a community that's really designed to protect the people living in it. Yeah, I think that's um, that's a theme in both the books uh, about community where these people are isolated and kind of stuck together and they may not love each other, but they need each other uh, in order to survive because they're in, in such harsh weather conditions and out in the middle of nowhere. And that's um, both in in Point Meteor and in this village. So they do sort of come up with their own little rules and um, and they depend on each other. And I think that, yeah, that that's something that runs in, in both books. Now here's the real question. Can you actually outrun your past life by going somewhere? Like Brockton, or like the village in the dark. Um, I—that's what I assume. <laughs> I ha—I, you know, I—I I don't know the actual people who live in uh, Whittier, Alaska. Um, when I did visit uh, for research, and everyone seemed very pleasant and nice, so I can't say <laughs> that they're all running from something. But of course, it's much more interesting. Um, to have these fictional characters who are all running from somebody or something. Well, at least one of them is unable to outrun the past. Um, but what we also have, and I thought this was really interesting, um, I've been to Japan several times, and the Ainu are um, basically the indigenous people in Japan and generally live in Hokkaido, although not entirely so. Um, and so you have a woman who has come um, from Japan, and um, she's she is a new, and here she is now in Alaska. Yeah, that was part of the um, the premise of this village is that they welcome uh, women who are running away from they call it man's world for whatever reason, and it's not uh, the the main um, founders I guess are indigenous, but they welcome non-indigenous people. And you know, just anyone, um, if there's a good reason. Um, and in this case, there's a half Ainu character, and um, I so the Ainu indigenous part is there. And I just thought that it was very um, 
interesting that the Japanese Ainu and the Pacific Northwest indigenous share a lot of commonalities, like the way they look at nature, um, some of their beliefs, their mythologies, and um, it's not in the book, but even some of their artwork is very similar. So I thought there's some kind of kinship at least there and that it would be interesting to put in a character like that and have this village that doesn't exist but kind of you know an ideal situation and or uh, to me like what what would that look like or or how would it be run well in part it's an immigrant story you know which i thought was really interesting in the in the context of you know she's an immigrant to alaska well, interestingly, I think Alaska, there are a lot of people from elsewhere, from the lower 48 and other places as well. Outside is what they call it with a capital O, if you are from outside. <laughs> I, I'm familiar with it since I spend a fair amount of time every year with a native Alaskan who is part native and part not. Um, and that's the terminology they basically use. I'm going outside or you're from outside or whatever. Uh, but, you know, they've had Russian, they've had, and, you know, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that given the Pacific Rim and, you know, Siberia and Russia, that the Ainu might at one point, you know, have moved back and forth um, from Alaska to Hokkaido, you know, just because there's water in the way now doesn't mean it always was. That's true. Um, and I think uh, the real city, Whittier, um, which, I, again, I did visit uh it is very much uh, diverse. It's there's people from Samoa there, there are people from Guam, there are people from the Philippines, from China, from Korea. There, there's just so many different, um, so many different people that y that it's kind of like the the city under one roof that I describe, and that's what kind of made me fall in love with it. Part of the reason among other reasons, but just the idea that it's a hodgepodge. And I mean, not the real city, but in my fictional city, in my fictional city, I felt like everyone would have sort of a tough exterior because you know they're living in these harsh conditions in an isolated town. So they have to be sort of um, tough on the outside, but um, in my book, they're all broken on the inside. So why does Kara end up going from Point Meteor to the village. I mean, why is she not staying in Point Meteor? Uh, she well, she's actually from Anchorage, and uh, she is on this. You know, she's investigating this mystery about what happened to her uh, husband and her son. And um, it's actually we go through Mia's POV to the village, and um, she eventually will become part of the story. But we don't know yet so it's actually it's her town and but there's some danger outside the village so you know i mean it's a complicated story because there are threats on all sides it, it is a complicated story and when i um when i came up with the title village in the dark it's partly it's dark because you know it's off the grid so they don't have you know they it's not very bright at night um and uh, the other reason is, uh, metaphorically, um, this character Mia, she grew up in this village um, without knowing man's world, as they call it. 
and she wants to um, eat from the fruit of knowledge, so to speak. And so, so she wants to leave this um, community and um, encounters danger. And, and, and there's a bit of, I feel, as if she gets corrupted in a way as she eats from the fruit of knowledge. But I mean, she's a teenager, and this is a very confining arrangement. And she has a best friend who is determined to leave and, in fact, does leave. Um, so, you know, it's natural for a kid to want to do something more broadening than live in this tiny village, even if there's a threat. I mean, because teenagers don't think they're, they think they're immortal anyway. So, you know, we all, we almost all notice that war heroes, for example, generally are really young. Audie Murphy, the most decorated soldier of World War II, what was he, like 17 or something? Seriously, you know, I mean, it takes that kind of, you know, mentality to want to, I think, break away from safety and and push against boundaries, partly just to find out who you are. Um, certainly, like in the first book, I also had a teenager who uh, desperately wanted to leave Point Medier. And and then so Mia Upa, she's not a teenager, she's a little bit older, but um, it's the same sort of thing. And I think subconsciously it's, I, I have put a little bit of um, my background because I used to live on a tiny island called Guam. <laughs> sure you know um, and I was a teenager at the time so it's a lovely island to visit on vacation and it's beautiful and everything but when you're a teenager and you're you know you feel stuck because it's so small and um, you just want to get out and I, I, ha I had that sort of feeling the island fever well this is totally off track but Guam was so hammered during World War II has it made a great recovery Oh yes, it's it's. Um, I think it's very bustling. You know, I was p there um, when I was in junior high, so it was a long time ago. I'm not going to tell you my age, but it was mm -hmm. a long time ago. And I think even since then, it's really developed. And um, you know, they have a lot of tourism there, and the beaches are lovely. Um, I do remember that, and I remember because it's primarily tourism. We were always told as kids to wave to the people on the bus, tour buses, and, you know, be welcoming. <laughs> I remember <Yeah>. that. <laughs> so eventually, um, without spoiling anything, Kara gets answers to the question that has been haunting her. Um, and so you do finish that up very well. I noticed in your notes that you gave a real shout out to Naomi Hirohara. So how has she contributed to your writing career? Oh, well, we've known each other for a long time, and we have a lot of uh, friends in common. And uh, yeah, we were we were on a panel when I was a screenwriter, and she was a book or she still is a book writer, and um, so that's how we met. We were on a panel together, and we've known each other since. And um, when I decided I wanted to write a mystery book, I um, asked her for help, and she would always answer any questions that I had. She would give me advice. Um, and we're doing um, my book launch together next week at Romans in Pasadena. So if you're in Pasadena, then um, I forgot to mention that the book doesn't publish till next week, but they gave us a pass to let I Iris come over here this evening and talk to us, which is really great. Patrick has a longer hearing, sorry, history with Naomi than I do because she was here for several of her Hawaiian books, right? Yeah, um, so we've watched it. I'm so pleased that she struck upon, you know, a couple of recent books that have just done wonders for her writing career and been super informative. 
World War II um, and what happened, you know, to the Japanese who were interned and how they coped with all of that and, you know, went to Chicago, lived in the, that, again, a fairly isolated way. And then in the second book, returned to Los Angeles and, you know, that wasn't wonderful. Yeah, she's, like um, she's really great at doing research. And uh, yeah, that was a great book because um, I, I didn't even know the history about uh, Chicago um, that Did many I people had I grew gone up there. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, but I was slightly too young since I was born right. when the war started. If I'd been a little bit older, I probably would have been because it's a part of Chicago on the north side around Navy Pier that I actually, you know, spent time in. Yeah, so that was fascinating. And then I think now she's, um, you know, set it in Los Angeles. So, um, yeah, she's very active in the Japanese-American community as well. And um, so she's a dynamo. She just, she's everywhere all at once. <laughs> yeah, she's really busy. She does like an event a day as far as I can work out. I see her constantly posting. So if you come to the, you know, sort of a the end of the cycle here, at least for Kara, you could start her in a new direction. You want to give us any hint about what you're thinking about as a different series? Um, or is it too I soon? Yeah, I think it's too soon because right now it's still in the outline phase. Um, uh, right now I'm also working on an audio series um, which does have to do with World War II and Japanese Americans, actually. Um, and it just came to me, it was com it's um, being commissioned by uh, BBC Radio. And so hopefully that will come out in the fall this year, hopefully. So Not you're writing the script for the, for the audio? Yes, I'm writing the, um, the scripts for the, for the for I think there's going to be six episodes altogether. Yeah, I just love it that due to podcasting and everything else, radio has come back. I mean, radio was yeah, the entertainment exactly. of my childhood, and then it all went away when television showed up. And now I'm finding that, you know, it's really returning that people are going back to listening to stories. Yes. So, but I do um, want to go back to writing books, and the idea that I have, I don't um, have much, I don't want to give too much information, but I do hope the setting is um, just as unique as this one, and the characters will be as unique. And um, one hint that I give for my two books is that I was inspired by Alice in Wonderland. So, in City Under One Roof, I have. Um, many references or Easter eggs to Alice in Wonderland. And the second book, Village in the Dark, I have many references to Alice through the looking glass. So you might want to look for those. Um, and I have some <coughs> ideas for something in a similar vein for the next book as well. Easter eggs. I love yes, the way writers Easter eggs. put that. <laughs> <laughs> what what I mean is an Easter egg? Tell <laughs> us what it is in, in a literary sense. What's an Easter egg? Well, they're more common in... Um, films they always say look for this you know look at this visual cue that uh, means this um, for me it's uh, a ref a, an allusion or a reference to something from somewhere else so um, in so for instance I think of um, in city under one roof when you're going through the tunnel it felt to me like you were falling through the physical rabbit hole and that you were going to end up in this really strange wonderland and so Kara is sort of like Alice falling through the rabbit hole and 
um, in the first book, there's Amy, and she's sort of like the white rabbit that she chases around for clues. And then um, Lonnie is the Mad Hatter because she has a mental disability. And uh, so there's, and there's references in the book to her being the Mad Hatter. And um, Ellie Wright is, I think of her as the Queen of Hearts because she kind of rolls over Point Meteor in a way. Cheshire Cat intrude. There My is personal a Cheshire favorite. Cat in the first book. If you can guess which one is the Cheshire Cat, you win a lot of, no, I don't know what you win. You win. <laughs> I always thought the Cheshire Cat was the most interesting character in the entire Alice saga. I just love him. Um, and he was, he was great in the movie as well. Well, anyway, um, anybody have any questions that they'd like to ask? Iris? Yes. Yeah, the, the first book took me a long time because I was doing it on the side as I was I was continuing to write screenplays and I was teaching for a bit. So it that one took me quite a while. It took me maybe like four years. But then, um, <laughs> I mean, not writing it full time, of course, just on the side. Um, but once I got a contract and then it, um, like the second book had to be done in a year, so, <laughs> or less than a year. So I had to really work a lot quicker, but I was doing it full time, so it was more manageable. Have there got any questions from the audience? There's a question about um, did you know about illustration as a writer while you were writing? Why did you pick the crime writing? Um, so why did I pick the crime writing genre? Um, I. Yeah, that's an interesting question because I hadn't really been a big uh, mystery reader, uh, but I had watched, I think I had watched something uh, like a streaming series that was a mystery, and I thought, oh, I would like to do something like that, and I think I was influenced by Twin Peaks when I was younger, watching that, and um, when I taught screenwriting, I always, says, I always used to say that it's great to start with a dead body, and... <laughs> So I thought, huh, maybe I should write a mystery. Um, sometimes we hear debut authors say they had no idea they were writing a mystery. So did you actually think of it as one deliberately? Yes. I, uh, when I started writing the book, I did think of it deliberately that it was going to be a mystery. Uh, you mean a book about L.A.? Sure, set in L.A.? Set in LA? I, I don't know. I think that it's um, it's been done. I I I have a friend who wrote uh, a book all about L.A. and Naomi would write all about Pasadena, which I thought was really interesting. But um, because I know it so well, I I feel like I want to go somewhere that people don't know. You know, like <laughs> like point well Whittier, but in my case, fictional Point Meteor. Um, or something else along those lines. To me, um, I like the escapism, I think. Well, I'm actually trying to think of places that um, I want to travel to and where I can write off. And so 
probably thinking, what can I write about in, in Switzerland in <laughs> the summer? <laughs> but, I mean, actually, when it, yeah, when it comes down to it, though, I think it is the sort of the escapism and trying to find someplace that's really unique because I like to think of the setting as a character. Um, I have, you know, I, it's not fair because I'm going to just name all my friends, <laughs> but you know, like Naomi Hirohara, of course. And, um, I've been reading some people who have asked me to, you know, write blurbs and going, wow, this is great. Um, but I, that's a, do you read nonfiction? I, you know, I read a lot. I've read a lot for work, so it is a lot of nonfiction. Yeah, I do a lot of research reading, and I'm a very slow reader, unfortunately. But yeah, I read. I've read a lot of books about World War II, and <laughs> of even and because I'm doing the audio series, um, very specific, you know, topics. So I, I don't know if they'd be interesting to the to the general audience. But yes, I do a lot of reading, but it, it is a lot of research. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you a question since you're writing a script for audio. How is that different from writing a screen script or is it? It is very different um, because obviously it, when you're writing a script, you can write visual descriptions, but in audio, you have to think about, okay, how do I relay things only in audio and you don't you can't see it and that is uh you know that's a hurdle it's sometimes i i have to think oh you know th the the way to go about it a lot of times is you have to have a narrator who can set the scene you know like we we landed in um italy and but you know you you have to because you can't see it so you have to oftentimes have a narrator who can set the scene for you. Yeah, I grew up when they used to have um, black and white Path of the News before you got to see the feature when I was a kid. And there always was a narrator, you know? I mean, a lot of it was wartime or, or post-war or whatever it is, but you know, it would come up in black and white and you'd see, but there was always a narrator describing what was happening, even though it was visual. Um, so I can see that and it, but there's sound effects that you can with audio because I mean radio. I remember seeing you know radio studios where they would have all kinds of noise making and other other stuff you know to provide sound, different sounds. Yeah, I think that's the fun part is the the audio. So you can just imagine through the sound effects what's going on. Um, but the other hard part for me is um, because it's a war movie. I have a number of characters. And I keep thinking, well, how are you going to know who's speaking? So, you know, not only do you have to have good actors, but I also, again, think about, well, what kind of dialogue can I put for them to, so they can be distinguished one from the other? So what are their characteristics? And, and that is, um, it's, 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 it's a good exercise, but it yeah. is hard. But it's, it's so you're not working with visual cues. You're working with audio, you know, auditory cues. Right. Um, that's fascinating. I don't know if I've ever talked to anybody who's been writing a script for audio. So, but I love it that it's coming back. You know, good for the British because they have a long tradition of, you know, the BBC. 
Um, is this is your script from a British point of view for the war? Is, I mean, is this no? no it's actually an uh, American story. It's um, it is Japanese Americans um, fighting in Europe, and um, I'm really amazed that uh, the BBC wants to do this. Um, <laughs> As opposed to, you know, I, I think they've been trying to sell this kind of film in the U.S. for a long time, and it's it's very hard to make. Of course, if a movie is much more expensive, and you need a lot more investment and cast, and um, it's much harder. So uh, I think it's interesting, and I think it's um, maybe a good way in is through audio. There's yeah. an author named James R. Bin, whom we're all very fond of, who's been writing a series about World War II from the very beginning, and he keeps going to different theaters and doing different things with an American protagonist. But <coughs> one or two books back, maybe the mo I can't remember, he wrote the whole book was about the Nisei troops in France and the incredible sacrifice that they made. You know, it was really yes. astonishing. Yes, they're known as the Purple Heart Battalion because uh, so many of them had died. And um, it's, yeah, it's it's amazing feats when you read about the history and, you know, look at all the people, what they did. I mean, because they, there's so many people who got medals and you read what they did and it's incredible. And it was very hard to figure out how to tell the story. Yeah. Well, it'll probably make you a better novelist. You know, the exercise. No, I'm serious. You know, the more yes. you write, the more you're exercising those muscles and, you know, learning things. And it sounds to me like that'd be a really good thing to be doing. Yeah, it's it's always it's always fun to try different media. Yeah, I did. So I I did um, the screenplay, the books. Now I'm doing audio. And at one point I did a musical stage play as well for <laughs> Disney, <laughs> Tokyo Disney Sea. So you had to learn to write lyrics? Um I didn't have to write the lyrics. I just wrote the show, um, and then where the music came in, they had you know uh, Tony Award-winning ri music writers. So that wasn't my area, but um, but again, it was another exercise. It's sort of you have to think about different things, like how do you interact with the audience? You know, what's the pre-show? Those are things that I had never thought about before. Yeah. How fascinating! Well. It's almost like a little writer's workshop that we've had here this evening, thinking about all these channels. So thank you very much, Naomi. It's been fascinating. Thank you, virtual audience, for watching. And thank you all for coming. And if you'd like to get a book signed, we will just stay right here. Thank you so yeah. much for having yeah. me. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.